brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. So thank you for joining us. Please check out Boiler Room. But the main event tonight on the JDR YouTube channel, we're about to host a discussion in debate format here between philosopher, author, TV and radio host. Uh, he's the proprietor of jaysanalysis.com. You know him as Mr. Jay Dyer. Jay, uh, welcome to the debate. And uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Jay Dyer, Jay's Analysis. Uh, um, I'm the author of Esoteric Hollywood 1 and 2. My graduate work was analytical philosophy uh, and psychological warfare, particularly in terms of English lit, uh, more recently in terms of uh, Ian Fleming. So my focus is in worldviews, how worldviews work, uh, paradigms, presuppositions, and so I believe in the transcendental argument for God's existence. So I'll be, uh, I'll be arguing for that and... I have created a couple TV shows, and I do a lot of uh, comedy and film analysis. All right, excellent. Looking forward to this, Jay. And on the other side of the table tonight, uh, along with, or perhaps versus, uh, he's the president of the Atheist Community of Austin, and he hosts a show called The Atheist Debates for his lovely patrons over at patreon.com forward slash atheistdebates. His name is... Mr. Matt Dillahoney. Matt, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, pretty sure you just did. I, I'm Matt Dillahoney. I've been hosting the Atheist Experience show for around 15 years or something. I was president for seven years, then I wasn't. Now I am again. Um, I do lectures, debates, and magic shows. And I completely forgot because in that closet back there is this massive stack of DVDs, including my Dario Argento collection, which I was going to have where you could. But it would be a distraction. We can talk about that one another time. I, I did right. an analysis of Suspiria. It's funny you said that. 
It's, it's yeah, it's actually not my favorite, but I understand it's probably his most popular and uh, yeah. Okay, it's probably my favorite. But go ahead. All right, excellent. All right, well, looking forward to it. Okay, as far as the show format goes, uh, Jay, go ahead and jump in if I don't have anything right here. But it looks like we're gonna do ten minute segments, and uh, I'll give you fellas a thirty second warning before a segment ends. Um, so those will be. Uh, are those uninter- uninterrupted segments, Jay? Is that how we're going to work this? Yeah, yeah, 10-minute uninterrupted segments. And then for okay. the first hour, and then if Matt, Matt wants to do a crossfire or whatever, conversation style, we can. Okay, great. So perhaps a crossfire round in the second hour if we're going to go that far. And uh, I believe we will be taking a Super Chat Q&A at the end of the show. So... Uh, fellas, help me uh, make sure I know like a few minutes before everybody, anyone has to leave or anything like that. So we can be sure and get that in there. And uh, okay, I guess uh, that's it. So uh, Matt, I think we'll uh, we'll give it to you. Do you want to go first or do you want to go second? Oh, I, I guess I'll go second because I'm not the one that's presenting an argument for something. So it's more of a response thing. And and the whole thing, you know, 10 interrupted minutes, I, I don't even know if I'll end up using that because I'm much more interested in the back and forth, but we'll work it however you need to. Okay, yeah, okay, I just did great. that to be safe. So whatever, I didn't know what, what how we want to do it. All right, uh, I'll go. I'll go ahead and say that. Um, so basically my argument will be presented like this. I think that um, worldviews are what we all have. We all function on the basis of three basic uh, philosophic approaches to life that are usually boiled down to metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology. So this, these three branches of philosophy historically have been what makes it what we could, what we could call a worldview, at least in, in Western philosophy. I would say that um, I believe, and I would argue, that each one of these branches is intertwined with the other. So, for example, if I argue for something in the realm of epistemology, uh, if I argue that a belief is true, Typically, what goes along with that is also an assumption about ethics and moral claims, moral judgments, that one ought to follow what is true. Um, now, one could disagree with that conceivably, but I'm going to argue that I think they're all intertwined. Similarly, if I were to say that uh, we know that something is the case, it also tends to uh, imply or necessitate certain beliefs about metaphysics, claims about what's real, what's not real. Uh, what can be or what can't be. So these three aspects of a worldview, I would say, are in a sense transcendental categories, or they at least utilize a lot of transcendental categories. Transcendental categories would be things like the principle of induction, the laws of logic, the past, identity over time, the self, um, the, the regularity that we find in nature. These are not Uh, subjects that are the immediate purview of empirical sense data or empirical science. They're related to empirical science. For example, the principle of induction, that the future will be like the past, that there's regularity in logic, that there's regularity and that there's a flow, you could say, to the scientific method. For example, if you study philosophy of science, you'll know that there's actually a logical process that's assumed in the process of doing the scientific method. So from reasoning on the basis of hypothesis to what the data supports towards a conclusion, for example, it presupposes that one ought to be true in this process if one wants to uh, obtain the most true uh, 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 conclusions in this in this process. It presupposes the logic that one, um, process, one step in this process should follow another step. 
And it also presupposes all kinds of other things like that words have meaning, regularity, etc. That objects have a sort of uniformity to them over time. That's, I would say, is all presupposed in the scientific process itself. Numbers would be presupposed in this process. And, and these are all, I think, things that are immaterial, invariant, they're conceptual, and they're abstract. Now, I think that because something is presupposed in the scientific methodology doesn't necessarily mean that we, in other words, what I'm saying, we don't necessarily prove everything in the same way, right? So in other words, something that is assumed, that's a category like that, a law of logic or something that's utilized in the scientific method is in a way more properly basic, more fundamental than even the scientific method itself. So even though the scientific method is not, doesn't have the laws of logic under its immediate purview, it still assumes laws of logic and that regularity that cannot be proven in terms of empirical sense data. So if one were to adopt a kind of naive empiricist view, a kind of logical positivism, what we end up with is the inability to understand or to justify the belief in the principle of induction, the regularity of nature, that the future will be like the past. Now, one could say conceivably that they don't think that we have to justify it or that we can't justify it. But I think that at that point we would be being arbitrary and we would be believing in and admitting things that we don't have any sort of uh, justification for. And I'm speaking here of a kind of specific philosophic justification here uh, in terms of warranted beliefs, in terms of uh, justifying true beliefs, et cetera. The, the, the way history of philosophy in the West has typically justified uh, propositions and beliefs I would say that we would be relying on things that are immaterial that we can't justify. And so the way that I move from that to God is to say that there are actually a whole bunch of things in all of our lives that we assume that are not strictly speaking physical, not strictly speaking, quote, pragmatic, because I, from what I gather from Matt's worldview, he tends to have a very sort of pragmatic approach. Uh, there's all these types of things that are not immediately justified or known by sense data or basic empiricism or in what's in the history of philosophy called naive empiricism. So what I would say is that if I were Matt, I, if I wanted to be a consistent skeptic, I would go the route of David Hume and be a skeptic all the way. And to be a skeptic all the way would be to admit ultimately that no, there's not a justification for induction for the regularity that we see in nature. And thus there's no justification epistemically, logically in terms of rationality, reason, logic, etc., for the scientific method itself. Now, we can fast forward all the way up to modern logicians like Bertrand Russell or William uh, Van Orman Quine. Russell and Quine also continued this idea of saying that there's not really a justification if you're a basic empiricist for these ideas. Uh, uh, they just have to be kind of a given. We can treat them like they are, but we can't coherently give a basis or justification for them. So to me, that's kind of an admission of the intellectual bankruptcy of this kind of logical positivist position. So you have all these kinds of things that are different from just physical material, physicalism, like laws of logic, like numbers, like number theory, like Mandelbrot sets, right? Very, very elaborate mathematical sort of equations that, that many philosophers and mathematicians, somebody like Roger Penrose, and I'm just bringing this forth as a testament, not a proof, just as a, a, an expert testament. You know, Penrose says that when I looked into the advanced mathematics of Penrose tiling, he said it looked to me like we're actually discovering these mathematical principles, not socially constructing them. So if you know about fractals, you know about Mandelbrot sets, you know they're very elaborate, right? They're not something that, that could just be a social construct. They're actual mental discoveries. 
So the point is that if that's the case, then I don't think it's at all irrational to believe that all of these different kinds of categories or transcendental preconditions could be explained perfectly in a worldview where God exists, and particularly the Christian view. So I'm here to defend Orthodox Christianity, not Southern Baptist theology, not the fundamentalist stuff, not Roman Catholicism or any of the other views. I have a very specific view and argument from Orthodox Christology and theology. Uh, so when we have that conception of God, God as a divine mind, uh, omnipotent, omnipresent, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what we then see is that reality has its grounding and its basis in the mind of God. So quite literally, everything that exists has a logoi or a logi, an exemplar, as it's called in the West. This is kind of like Platonism, but I want to be very precise because we're not Platonists. But we do believe that the essences and the universals that exist are ultimately grounded in the mind of God. And that makes perfect sense. That makes sense why there's regularity in nature because of divine, divine providence, because everything that exists is, in a sense, grounded in the mind of God. Thus, truth has more than just a pragmatic function. It actually is a transcendent quality. Truth is actually objective. It's not just a social construct. It's actually a reflection of the mind of God. And specifically, I would argue that if we got into the nitty-gritty of it, it would be a defense of the orthodox view of God, right? Getting down to the point of the one and the many, for example. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is a classic problem in, in the history of Western philosophy. The one of the many problem is solved by our doctrine of the Trinity, and more specifically by the Logos, Christ, and the Logi, right? The rational principles that are operant in nature. Now, it's true that we could remove all that. We could just say, well, none of that's true. I don't buy any of that. Those are a bunch of logical crazy leaps. And I just think that what exists out there is matter in motion. I don't know, Matt's heard this argument many times. I'm not going to rehash all the sort of classic uh, uh, presuppositionalists, quote-unquote, that he's debated, because I think my argument is a little more precise, uh, a little more fleshed out, uh, better argued, hopefully. Uh, and that is that all of these different transcendental categories, if you were to sort of bundle them into a big pile, they make perfect sense in a world created by God, in a world that unfortunately is fallen, uh, but nevertheless still reflects to a degree the truth about God. If we're made in the image of God, we understand how there's dignity. If we are made in the image of God, we have the ability to know objective truth, right? God's world is regular. It operates on principles of regularity. If the mind of God is the basis of all reality, we have a basis for these really abstract and, and obtuse mathematical principles that we know are real, that are not, strictly speaking, physical. So all of these kinds of things, right? Ethics, epistemology, metaphysics, they make perfect sense in a worldview where our God exists and the kind of God that we argue for, in a worldview where we have pure materialism, pure pragmatism, random chance, random chaos, there's nothing like invariant, immaterial, uh, conceptual, law-like things. Where are they? What are they? They're just social constructs. Now, I don't know if that's Matt's opinion or view, but I have heard him say in previous discussions and talks that he doesn't think that there is a justification, so to speak, for logical laws, mathematical principles, these sort of abstract conceptual things, he thinks that they're just kind of things that we just use, and they work. But that, 30 seconds. But that would be, I would say, to be arbitrary. Uh, and when it comes to debate, we're presupposing universal categories and laws, and that doesn't allow us to be arbitrary.
right. Thank you, Jay. Uh, excellent. excellent. Well done. It was right on time. And uh, over to Matt now. Let me reset our timer here. Okay, Matt, over to you. Hi. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I will say I'm not convinced that I actually heard an argument in all of that. Um, one of the things is is that yeah, I'm not necessarily requiring that we have, you know, a fully constructed syllogism, but if we could get close to that, because what you seem to be arguing for in this is, hey, we all have a worldview, and it includes all these things, and they're intertwined. I, I, I agree. Um, but what I'm getting to is to whether or not the things in our worldview are true. I mean, there probably needs to be a side discussion about truth and whether or not we can actually, whether or not we can attain it. Because when you say that it's essentially arbitrary uh, to decide that we can't justify the things that we presuppose, uh, I, I disagree. When we have, for example, the, the laws of logic, which I would argue presupposes truth or presupposes reality. And so there's a number of things that we're going to presuppose uh, just to get work done. And but they're not it's not just arbitrary. It's not like we decided, oh, a thing is what it isn't. And we'll just arbitrarily accept that. There are reasons why we have justification to think that that's reasonable. But the recognition that we don't necessarily know what guarantees that is not arbitrary. It's an acknowledgement that throughout all of, of, of the time that we've been kind of pouring over these things in philosophical context, uh, we haven't been able to come up with something that is demonstrably a guarantor of logic or a guarantor of human dignity or any of the things that, that you might list. And so it's completely unsurprising to me that, and, and I think it's true, a worldview that includes a belief in a God that could serve as a guarantor for all of those things makes the world make sense. But that's about a belief in a God that does that. And you, you can substitute the word God with anything. Belief that there is a justifiable foundation serves as a justifiable foundation. It's virtually circular there. The, the problem here is that you're assuming that, in fact, there is some sort of foundation. And I don't know if you're doing it in, in, a, in a sort of causal sense, which I would argue might be a mistake because causality... Primarily, I think, would deal with, like, physical physicality. And, and causality may not apply to the abstract, uh, at least not without there being some physical thing. Like, a, you know, you, you have an abstract thought, you convey it to me, and that leads to this. But that's still a physical process of what's happening in the brain, and that there may not be causality with regard to the abstract. And so when I, when I look at things like truth, um, yeah, I'm fine with, the, you know, truth is that which comports with reality. But I don't see any path to absolute certainty. I don't see any way to uh, guarantee um, or, or, or point to something that says this guarantees that identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle uh, are always universally correct. They appear to be. They are, Our reliance on them is because they continually demonstrate their reliability in the sense that we're not all dead. Uh, if, if, I, if I have a worldview that says that buses are imaginary, all of a sudden becomes crossing the street becomes far more dangerous. And so the only thing that I can do is interact with the reality that I have. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of Occam's razor, don't multiply entities unnecessarily. And so I presuppose that there's a reality which I share, um, which I can't prove or justify. Uh, I do find, I think there are some some potential arguments against 
hard solipsism, uh, but only in the sense that uh, they seem satisfying to us. There's it's no way to demonstrate. Like the, the one I've used before is that I find it patently absurd that I've both written every wonderful song that I've enjoyed, which I don't understand and don't know the key of or anything else, but uh, and also the ones that I despise. Or I've been every caller who's called into this show with good points and all the callers that have called in with bad points. That That level of I am the only thing uh, I think, perhaps intuitively, if if no other justification, appears to be far more absurd than the likelihood that Jay and I are sharing a reality. And so, when I when I look through the opening here, I agree we have a worldview. Um, I noticed that among the abstract, transitory items, he didn't list truth. Um, whether or not it's in there, on, on his view, is up to him. But oh. <laughs> There was a note popped up there. Um, but so when it was interesting because when Jay said, here's how I get from there to God, and we'd gone through a long list of things, and it's here's how I get from there to God. And then we heard about Russell and Quine and just on and on and on about how uh, – and, and some items about mathematics. And the only thing that came close to how we get to a God, as far as I can tell, is uh, sort of um, – I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna remember the, the right term, but essentially, it's an it, it's it was an expression that a worldview without a god leaves us without answers to this, but a worldview with a god gives us answers to this, and that presupposes that the type of answers that you're getting from a god are actually answers that th that there is some explanation. The questions that that, that I would have is, uh, I tons of them, which we'll get to at different points throughout this. But is it possible for something to just be the way it is, that something X is true without some sort of external justification, guarantor, or prescriber? Because if, if that's the case, and, and there is a whole bunch in philosophy about what truth is and whether or not it's accessible, and you know, if I'd have known we were going to spend as much time as we likely are today, I probably would have gotten high beforehand because that, that makes those conversations at least a little more fun, except that I don't like to be high and certainly not in, in a debate. But the, the, the question about truth, you could argue, for example, let's, let's take identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle, which I used to say was the only thing that I presuppose. And then I realized, no, I have to presuppose truth in order to be able to presuppose those. The problem is, is that there's a little loop there automatically, which is if I want to justify that there is truth, that there is a reality, if, if I'm using a compatibilist model of truth, um, I still have to exercise reason to reach that conclusion. So we're back to us, the essentials of identity, non-contradiction, et cetera. And so when we talk about whether or not something is true, we qu quite often it is there must be some explanation for this because we run around the world and we see things and we, we look at it and say, why is that the way it is? And I've, I've said before that you know, people would argue that, well, science offers how questions, not why questions. But that's, that's semantics because I can reword any question we have as a how or a why. How did this come to be is essentially the same as why does this exist as long as you're, you're being contextual. And so this... And this admission that I don't have an explanation for why there is truth or is there truth or why are the logical laws uh, apparently absolute and inviolable isn't 
an admission of intellectual bankruptcy. It is an admission of what appears to be the the facts of the case, which is why, you know, you've got the transcendental arguments for the existence of God, which I would argue, uh, and, and you might have other arguments. I mean, Plantica's modal logic, ontological, et cetera. And these are kind of held up amongst incredibly smart and well-read people as some of the best arguments for the existence of God. And uh, that may or may not be the case. I'm, I'm, I've been asked many times, what, what's the best argument for God? And I don't know. Uh, but the, that they're being held up as this seems to be based on an, on an idea that there is, in fact, an explanation. And I have seen no argument or evidence that that there is, in fact, that sort of an explanation. And so while you can phrase it as I'm admitting intellectual bankruptcy, um, I prefer to view it as being intellectually honest that I'm not going to make more presuppositions than necessary. I'm not going to say, you know what, it'd be really nice if there was something that could serve as a foundation. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. For logic. And it would also be really nice if there was something that could serve as a foundation for morality. There would also be something very nice if there could serve as a foundation for uh, human dignity, et cetera. Um, that'd be really cool. Except that I don't know that there are foundations for those. I don't know that it's impossible that they couldn't just, well, first of all, they may not all be true. Uh, but I don't see that it's impossible. There's been no demonstration that there must be some foundation beyond the laws of logic. And, and the curious thing is, I think that even if you argued that a god solves that problem, the only reason that it does is because modern theological definitions of God include this thing that God doesn't need a justification. As 30 just a, seconds, Matt. It's a bald assertion. So we have these things that may or may not have a justification. We're not aware of what that justification would be. And then we argue for something that hypothetically could serve as that justification and maybe even just believing it exists serves as a satisfier, but not a guarantor. And in spite of that, we're stuck with how did we come up with this thing that serves as an explanation for nothing and needs no explanation of itself. Okay. Time's up. Good one. Good one. All right. Um, 
Yeah, great comments there and questions from Matt. Um, so first he asked for a syllogism. So I, I think I can oblige this to a degree and say that, uh, yeah, uh, 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 I could state it like this. There are many transcendental categories. I'll list some of the ones that I think are, are strong. And I don't mind that Matt included the, the idea of truth. I don't have a problem including truth. There's, pr there's plenty, actually. It's just that I was just kind of going off the top of my head and listing sure. some. But you could say something like, identity of objects over time. You could say value judgments. You could say uh, interpretive frameworks. You could say the problem of the one and the many. You could say meaning in language. You could say words themselves. You could say uh, temp uh, temporal spatial relations. You could say the past. You could say numbers. You could say the idea of causality. You could say the, uh, uh, the idea of telos, rights, freedom. Um, all of these could be bundled together. Uh, if we were to uh, uh, discuss those things, uh, they're presupposed not just in the process of scientific methodology, which I was kind of focusing on in the opening statement, but in life in general, right? I mean, throughout life, we assume these kinds of things all throughout. We assume the existence of a self, right? The self, however, is not something, obviously, that is empirically verifiable. We, we kind of assume it in the process of arguing for it or against it. Uh, now, I'm not saying that that people that argue about it or, or that, that there might not be in, you know, some attempt to scientifically investigate the notion of a self. But even if you were to find a pineal gland where you thought something you know, like Descartes, where, where the soul or the self or mind or whatever was housed or whatever, there's still a, dist a distinction, I would argue, between brain and mind, in my view. Now, that's why I'm saying that when we talk about reasoning, when we talk about logic, when we talk about all these different categories, I think we're talking about things that are outside the purview of mere sense data and sense experience. That doesn't mean that they don't have any connection to material sense data and sense experience. They're, they're interrelated, but they're not identical. So I, I want to say that I don't think we have to fall into like an either or unless we presuppose materialism. I think if we did presuppose materialism, it would be self-contradictory. So the argument specifically in terms of syllogism is that all of these transcendental categories, if they are to be made coherent and sensible, and I do believe in a coherentist view of truth and justifying claims, not a uh, classical foundationalist type of view in terms of epistemology. So I'm going to be arguing for that school of thought. I would say that, that we would justify them in terms of their coherence in the worldview in which there is a God that's, that's presented according to Orthodox Christianity. So that's the syllogism, if you want a, a boiled-down version of it. And, and that's a positive statement of the argument that he's justified on the basis of being the grounds and the coherence, if you will, what strings all these many pearls of transcendentals together on a golden string, if you will, a pearl necklace, is God himself. God is the personal one who does this, and because he's personal and not an immaterial abstract force like a uh, law of logic or gravity or the way the Greeks thought of God as thought thinking itself or some impersonal force. He's actually personal. That then makes reality at a fundamental level personal and not dead matter. It's not meaningless matter out there. It's actually uh, fundamentally uh, at the very fabric and structure, uh, subatomic level, I would argue, a personal God that's there, that's present, that's staring us at the in the face in every action of predication and every act in the world, even in the midst of Evil actions, if we, if we think about the problem of evil, I would argue that that presupposes some standard by which we adjudge good and evil. Now, Matt's response was that, um, can we even attain to this truth? Uh, he's not convinced that we can. And so he went on to sort of explicate that, as, as I wrote down what he was saying, I don't want to misrepresent him, that, that just because we believe that we sort of constructed justifications for things in an abstract way, doesn't necessarily mean that it perhaps matches up to the external world. Maybe that we just believe that we've attained justifications 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is right so we can't move to this this abstracted realm into the realm of the here and the now out there in the world um i could to a degree concede that except that i don't think that that's what my argument was or was intended to be i wasn't trying to argue that um, just because we can find a rational justification that it necessarily means that everything in the world conforms to a, a purely mental structure because I'm not just trying to map the external world with mathematics or something like that. I'm actually looking at something that's even more fundamental, in my view, than numbers or mathematics. I would argue that in our system, yes, God is the ultimate presupposition. So Matt was correct to say that it sounds like Jay's presupposing the existence of God, and yes, I am. And I know that Matt's debated presuppositions before, I don't think they were very good presenters of that argument. But yes, in effect, because I believe in that sort of coherentist view of truth and of the world, it's impossible for me not to have some final circular authority that I appeal to. In my belief, in my, in my system, my worldview, it is ultimately going to be God. And that's not inconsistent with the system or the, or the, the philosophy that I'm promoting, right? Coherentism, uh, not classical foundationalism, which out of the enlightenment actually leads to that kind of atheist materialist perspective, I would say. But in fact, there's nothing logically wrong or, or incoherent by saying that God is the ultimate foundation in my worldview and that I am presupposing it and that I'm comparing what I presuppose to Matt's presuppositions. Matt's presuppositions are very pragmatic, as I said. They're, very, they're skeptical and they're pragmatic, and I, I understand that. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I would just enjoin Matt to be more consistent if he's going to go that route and go the route of Hume and go ahead and say that truth can't be justified. Induction can't be justified. And not only can it not be justified, we have to utilize all these things that don't make sense on our worldview. So I wasn't just throwing out names of Russell and William Van Oren Quine to be fancy or whatever, but I'm actually making a specific point about the fact that Russell and Quine all the way back to Hume, there's been a consistent pattern amongst the empiricists, the pragmatic tradition, to say there's not a rational, logical justification for these things that we use in an empiricist worldview. And if there's not, then, then we don't really have a reason or a basis to go into debate. I'm not saying that you can't debate. I'm glad that you did. But on the grounds of logic, on the grounds of debate, which I think presupposes logic and truth, as you talked about, we don't really have the grounds to debate itself, right? So debate presupposes some common notion of truth. It presupposes the ability to communicate truths that are not merely material. I mean, I'm speaking words that have meaning, right, that are conceptual in some way, that go beyond just the vocal cords and just the electricity that actually convey information. If we look at information science, information science suggests that there's, we don't find information, meaningful information being transferred anywhere in the world that's not from a mind. So the argument that I made was that even more fundamental than numbers or, or the concept of information or, or words is all of these transcendental categories that are presupposed in communication, in life, in logic, in ethics, and whatever. And they make sense in a paradigm, in a complete worldview, where we have the kind of God that we believe in. That is the argument. Now, one could conceivably say, I don't accept transcendental arguments. I don't believe that they're a valid form of logic. Well, one could do that, but I think that that would lead to, again, more fundamental self-contradictory positions that are ultimately sort of destructive to philosophy as a whole. I mean, I, I kind of appreciate that Matt was almost hinting maybe that well maybe there could be some sort of solipsism or something like that and i think that if one were to go down the logical positivist humean route that would be the consistent way to go you would kind of be led to that uh well you know we live in the matrix kind of view like neo or something right that that this is just sort of a a projection of my subconscious of my mind 
Because many in the empiricist tradition actually did go down that way. They went down that route by saying that, you know, if we're going to talk about justifying our beliefs, being rational, giving a coherent account of our beliefs, we can't really prove the existence of the past. Not only can we not do that, we can't justify induction, the, the, the principal belief that the future will be like the past. We can't really justify the self. I mean, we have a maybe a bundle of memories, but that doesn't necessarily equate to a, quote, self, that there's a transcendental unity of a self that, that sort of is uh, underlying all these perceptions, right? All these, these uh, the sense data that comes to us from our, our uh, from empirical experiences. Um, we, if we can't justify those things, then some of them went in this route of a kind of radical solipsism. And they said, yeah, the only thing that we can know is what's immediately presented to our senses. And even that, we can't even know if that's coming to us from an external world. Uh, it's just perhaps something that our mind is presenting to our senses, right? Um, this would be eventually the debate that's called indirect realism. And, and if you go the route of indirect realism, then you don't even have a basis for an external world. And belief in the external world actually is a transcendental category, a transcendental truth, I would argue, as all these other things that I listed are. Now, if we're at that point in our philosophy, and I don't fault Matt for going perhaps into and exploring the realms of where these ideas lead, I think what they show us is that when we don't have the presupposition of God and when we don't start with that, we're inevitably led down these paths to dead ends in philosophy, total contradictions. And for example, if one were to say, well, maybe solipsism isn't a contradiction. Maybe everything is just a phenomena of my mind. If we were to go to that route, then we would be led to the conclusion that everything that's, ha everything that's happening is essentially, in some sense, illusory or just a figment, a phenomena of, of passing ghost, you could say. Uh, and if that was the case, then my coming to know the truth of solipsism would also be part of the solipsist maze and mirror, and it would be self-contradictory. All right. And All right. And time. Thank you, Jay. Very good, very good. Everybody, if you're just joining us, you're at the Jay Dyer YouTube channel, and we're having a friendly discussion slash debate tonight between Jay Dyer and Matt Dillahunty. I am your uh, co-host, your guest host, your moderator, your timekeeper. My call sign is Hesher. Thank you for joining us for the show tonight. And uh, all right, Matt, we'll pass it back over to you. Uh, the mic is yours. Yeah, so uh, I'm a huge fan of Hume. Um, doesn't mean I agree with him everything. I'm definitely not a logical positivist, but I think Hume on the foundations of epistemology is probably where most of my views either formed or began. And and for a longest time, and, and I don't really go with labels when we talk about a lot of things. Like I, I'm fine with truth is that which comports to reality largely, as opposed to a coherent view of truth. When it comes to the foundations, I think Probably one of my favorite ones that comes closest to being a label that I could apply to myself is actually found herentism, which is something that Susan Hawke put forth, um, I don't know, somewhere in the last 20 years or so, maybe. Uh, it's a combination of foundationalism and coherentism, uh, and and yet none of it actually works because I don't think we've completely cracked the problem or we it would be ridiculous of us to pretend that we uh, are all in agreement on uh, the best epistemology. As a matter of fact, I'm in an argument or about to be in an argument with somebody else who argued for intuition as an epistemology, and I find that patently absurd, especially when you say, oh, yeah, intuition is an epistemology, but you can't really trust it. You have to go and test it. And that means that testing is now your epistemology and intuition is is the process by which you apply the results. Um, but to say that my view means I have no grounds to debate 
because you know we don't have a common ground. We do have a common ground. Uh, we we are in fact doing it. We're debating concepts beyond what we already agree with. Uh, as far as I can tell, Jay and I agree that we share a reality. Whether or not we can justify that is independent of the fact that we agree that we do. We we seem to share the notion that identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle uh, are as absolute as anything I can imagine. Um, we begin with that common ground, and then we debate the things that aren't common. And one of those things is, is there a foundation behind this? Is there some justification for thinking there's a foundation? Or is this circular appeal to the God presupposition that Jay talked about, is that really something that we use to ease our discomfort? Because one of the, one of the cool things that's happened over the years, and when I've mentioned Occam's Razor before, uh, Occam's Razor is often misrepresented as the simplest explanation is often the best. And literally the the formal phrasing of that is what I mentioned earlier, which is don't multiply entities unnecessarily. The problem is, is that when you say God did it, that feels simple to people. And so they think they're consistent with God, with, with, with Occam's razor. And so they're saying, ah, well, you presuppose logic and dignity and morality and all these other things, which isn't necessarily true. I'm just using those all as, as examples. I find, I think that some of them are derivative, but you presuppose all those things, and all I have to do is presuppose God. So I have fewer entities, and it's simple. Except that that God presumption comes with a load of baggage and a lot of manipulation, including getting it to be the thing that does not require an additional justification. And there are questions. Um, well, let me let me finish this part. Uh, we're debating the part that's not common. Now, whether or not we can justify those things that we agree on, I don't. I'm not convinced that we can. Um, otherwise, there wouldn't be this debate. Uh, we'd just agree. Yep, we can or we can't. So I think what we're starting to talk to is about, and, and, and this may be a bit of a cheat on my part, but about certainty. Because that's the thing that seems to pervade this in the, well, what is your confidence level? Or what is your like if you were to, to, to try to quantify your rational justification in X, and if you begin with a presupposition, uh, Nothing that, that is derived from a standard can be more accurate than the standard. So if I have a, a, a watch that doesn't keep good time or I have a ruler that isn't to a standard, all of my measurement, none of my measurements with that can be more accurate than the standard that I'm going with. And so we have this grand unknown about logic and whether or not it is, in fact, absolute and inviolable as it seems to appear. And, and even in pure, pure reasoning terms, uh, you, you're automatically led to presuppositions. You would have to assume they were true in order to prove they weren't true. You would have to, and, and that gets us to the assumptions about truth. For me, what I often see is this assertion that your worldview can't justify this and therefore you have no grounds to say anything or do anything else. And when I, when I hear that, it seems to me that somebody's saying, you can't be absolutely certain, even if you could be reasonably certain. And so what I, I don't think you can be absolutely certain about anything. And I've in the past talked about what I described uh, as I I'm fully acknowledge that I am a, um, a dilettante and, and not a, a degreed or credentialed person in this field at all. So I work things out on my own based on others, but it's what I described as maximal certainty. If I begin with there is a reality and the laws of logic appear to be inviolate, and I will re I will revise that the second somebody demonstrates that the laws of logic can be violated or don't always apply. I don't know how they could do that. But then everything that is deductively arrived from those, like mathematics, I would say 
you can be maximally certain about because it, the deduction from logic leads to essentially the same level of, of certainty, not in your actual results, because we can always, you know, forget to carry the one or something. But mathematics itself is deductively derived from that. And so we can be maximally certain. Other things are inductively derived. And so there's a lower standard of certain certainty that doesn't approach maximal. And maximal could be absolute. If the laws of logic are absolute, then maximal becomes absolute. It's just that I don't have any way to demonstrate that. For everything else, we have a lower confidence level. And a la Hume, the wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. Um, and so recognizing that, I live in a world, and I don't think I can be absolutely certain about anything. But that doesn't mean that I'm in a state of chaos and can't determine anything. I live in a world that is apparently reasonable where we have scientific methods, which, by the way, science doesn't make any proclamations about truth or claim any sort of certainty. Science is always about, this is our tentative conclusions based on the best current evidence. It's always subject to revision. Nobody's claiming that, you know, the moon absolutely, well, all right, I was going to go with green cheese, but there is the thing where you can, you may not know what something is, but you can still demonstrate what it isn't, you know, that, that this doesn't apply. Um, so I have a belief in an external world. I agree that that is a transcendental view, but as long as you and I agree that we share the same reality, which we must do, otherwise we wouldn't have agreed to reschedule this debate and come on here and talk there, then that's all we need to then begin to have a discussion about whether or not we have foundations beyond that. So th there's a problem that was stated very early in, in the, the last 10 minutes or so. Uh, where you were like going to try to put it in some sort of syllogistic form. I don't think we really got there, but I think I might have a better understanding, which is there's a whole bunch of trans, uh, transcendental categories. And if those categories are to be made coherent and sensible, then they require a justification. And you believe that you've found that justification. This is a problem that I have with the coherent model of truth. And that is, you're absolutely right, Jay. As long Because the coherent model of truth is one where you truth um, is coherent with a set of propositions. And one of the propositions that you're including is these things have a foundation. That is the proposition that I reject. I'm not saying it's false. I can't demonstrate that they don't have a foundation. I'm just saying there's been no demonstration that they do. I don't see any reason why these things aren't true in and of themselves in much the same way that people would argue that God doesn't need a foundation in and of itself. To me, if there's no demonstration, if you, there's no way to demonstrate that that this could have been any other way, then we're on pretty good ground in saying the laws of logic have to be absolute, uh, or at least it's a reasonable, not quite maximally certain inference from the direct observations and the fact that these tools keep providing us with what appears to be consistent understandings of reality. Now, you can construct a justification for anything. And this is why if we're sitting at a card table, and full disclosure, I'm a magician, I can cheat at cards. And I deal out the cards and you get, we're playing bridge and you get 13 spades, you get the perfect bridge hand. Now, within the context of our understanding of the world, you could make a reasonable conclusion that perhaps I cheated, especially if you know you're sitting there with someone who's capable of dealing out pretty much whatever they want or seemingly dealing out whatever, whatever they want. And it would be easily argued that the worldview that includes Matt cheated would offer the best explanation, the most likely explanation for how you wound up with all 13 spades. Um, but that doesn't tell us whether or not that's actually true at all. 
because we know at least a couple of times in actual bridge tournaments, the perfect bridge hand has been dealt and there's no evidence of any cheating. We also know that it is possible as one of the many uh, random outcomes of a shuffled deck of cards. 30 seconds, Matt. But it's more comforting to say, I don't know if he cheated or not, but boy, it sure would make a lot more sense if he cheated. That's completely independent from whether it's true, which gets us back to what I was saying earlier, that the belief that there's a God that serves as a foundation may be comforting, but I see no demonstration that it's necessary or true. Uh, really good statements there. Um, the first thing I would point out is that uh, when you said that we appeal to God to uh, ease our discomfort, um, my first argument would be that that is a, an appeal to emotion. Uh, that's not a valid argument. That's actually a fallacy to appeal to the fact that the people that believe this or go down this route are doing it because of psychological motivation. So I don't think that's a valid argument. I would say next that uh, the idea that um, you have the ability to distinguish between the categories that are maximally certain, such as abstract numbers, etc., versus the things that... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers derived from induction, scientific experimentation, empiricism. The ability to make that, that distinction itself presupposes some true category once again. So while I recognize that you wanted to sort of qualify by moving into the category of maximally certain and not absolutely certain, that's fine. You can use whichever terms you want to use from my perspective. It doesn't matter to me because I don't believe that you would be able to have in the pragmatic perspective, a justification for any kind of truth whatsoever. In fact, the whole system quite literally should lead directly into solipsism and total relativism. Now, I know that you don't necessarily accept total relativism because, as you said, we have a common world, a common uh, uh, something area where we, where we can dialogue about these things and have the debate. So we don't believe in total relativism. However, in order to not believe in total relativism, again, assumes these categories, assumes these things that you seem to admit, but don't think that they necessarily presuppose or lead to any kind of a personal God. And I, and I understand why you're saying that. But So I want to stress that I don't think uh, the appeal to discomfort is a valid argument. I don't think that you have the ability to have even maximal certainty and I don't believe that you can construct a justification for anything. So the example that you gave was a, a case where you could, you know, you, uh, you cheated at cards, et cetera, et cetera, and somebody could build a case or whatever. Uh, when it comes to normative day-to-day uh, -day kinds of activities or um, what you could call normative logic, that could be true, yes. There's a lot of situations where we would have, through induction, limited amounts of certainty. But the strength of the transcendental argument, the strength of the argument that's being presented here is that there are some things that are so fundamental that to deny them 
or doubt them, which theoretically one could doubt them, but to actually live or to actually consistently try to doubt them and not live according to them or not, uh, you know, debate according to them would lead to such a fundamental breakdown of the coherence of one's belief system or even the possibility of knowledge, the possibility of operating in the world, of predicating uh, about objects in the world, of knowing things in the world or doing science at all. Those types of things are so fundamental that they're, I'm arguing, even stronger as an argument. They're, they're maximally certain to whatever degree you want to posit. They're at, if you want to say absolute or not absolute, that's fine. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I don't have a problem using the terms of you know, warranted beliefs or highly warranted or maximally or whatever because really those are just humanly derived terms that are trying to describe the strongest level of certainty possible. So I believe that, the, that those kinds of transcendental categories – are not only maximally certain or necessary, but that they don't operate independently. They actually presuppose and interact with one another, which is kind of why I started the debate talking about the three branches of philosophy which make up a worldview. These things all, uh, I believe, cohere and kind of presuppose and are tied together with one another. For example, it wouldn't make any sense to talk about uh, the past experiences and cannot have a, a, a rational belief in past experiences uh, if... I didn't believe that there was a self that had those experiences. It seems that, that these two things kind of go together. Um, being able to predicate about objects in the external world, right, kind of assumes that objects in the external world have identity over time, right, that I can pick out one object amongst many objects, and so that's the problem of the one and the many, right? So any, any kinds of examples like this tend to, we, I would say, kind of assume all these transcendental categories together, even if we're only focusing on maybe one area here or there. Maybe we're only talking about linguistics. A lot of modern philosophers, P.F. Strawson, Carl Otto Apple, they've done a lot of work in transcendental arguments as they apply to language and linguistics. How many things, it's kind of amazing how many things we presuppose just in communication, just in subject predicate relations and sentences, just in trying to, to communicate that information to another bunch of, of gray matter. The, the intricacy, the complexity in this is, is, is fascinating. It's, 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 it's phenomenal, actually. Um, and so what I think is so strong about this argumentation is that we're not just arguing that it's a kind of a model up here in the abstract that's pretty cool, like some big World of Warcraft scheme that we've, we've invented that really doesn't have anything to do with the external world. I'm saying that, no, when, when I have a friend who's a rocket scientist. He, he's done contract work for NASA. He does, designs Blackhawks, right? He talks about the, the amazing complexity of the algorithms that he works with. Now, I'm not a mathematician, right? I know about math theory in terms of philosophy, but I don't do the abstract, you know, uh, calculus that he does to how to build, you know, Blackhawks, right? Um, but to him, at least in his mind as an engineer and many other engineers and mathematicians who utilize math in engineering, is that they see the practical application of this very abstract realm into the here and the now, and if something's wrong in the equation, the Black Hawk's not going to fly. It's going to crash, right? So he has to be very precise. He has to be very clear in the way that he gets it all perfectly right. And so it's not just in the realm of the abstract. It's also very present in the here and the now. And that's just mathematics. So what I think if we reorient our perspective, when we look at the power and possibility of transcendental arguments, we're not just saying something theoretical. We're actually mapping this onto reality and saying that all of reality kind of presupposes this kind of a God, and that itself is the argument. So again, one could conceivably say I don't accept transcendental arguments, but I think that that would lead to a bunch of dead ends, and a reductio is a valid argument. If, we, if we're led to dead ends when we deny this thing over here, to me, I think that's one of the strongest possible arguments. 
A um, couple other last points on uh, uh, Matt's uh, uh, last statements there was that I think when he says that uh, coherentism, he, when he was listing coherentism, he talked about how your beliefs don't have a foundation. Well, I'm not trying to fault Matt as if he necessarily doesn't understand this. Maybe he misspoke, but the coherentism is not about foundations. It's actually about the coherence of the web of beliefs, right? So there's two models. The foundationalist model is like self-evident maxims and then beliefs on top of the self-evident maxims and then beliefs that lead to further beliefs that lead to further beliefs, right? So that's foundationalism, and it has foundations. We don't have that model, right, when it comes to uh, webs of beliefs and when it comes to paradigms and worldviews that are justified in terms of coherentism. So that's because uh, if I'm thinking about uh, logic over here in this arena, maybe I'm talking about the laws of logic, that's not disconnected from who I am. That's not disconnected from my belief in God. It's not disconnected from ethics that we ought to be logical, that we ought to reason from premise to valid conclusion, right? So it's all connected in our view, and I think that's a better method, a better way of understanding truth, propositions, uh, beliefs, claims, etc. So uh, I would say that I think Matt's position, while he did ask some good questions, kind of misunderstood and made a couple uh, logical violations there. And the response that what if there's no explanation? Well, I would say that if we're here to debate and if we want to debate theism, um, I would say that if Matt wants to say that there's all these things that he utilizes, but doesn't necessarily think that they're true in the external world per se, laws of logic and all that, truth with a capital T or whatever, um, I would say that Matt's being arbitrary. And if Matt can be arbitrary, then I can say God just is, right? So if arbitrariness is allowed, if we can be ad hoc, then I think that the debate is over because that would be a violation of the laws of debate. But, of course, we don't believe that we can be arbitrary or ad hoc, and so, therefore, we can't just say, well, the laws of logic just are. Uh, uh, I forget Matt's phrase. He said that truth is what maps up to reality or, or uh, belief that conforms to reality. That's a metaphysical claim, right? That's a metaphys metaphysical statement about the external world, right? Now, I'm not, I know Matt would only say that, well, that's maximally certain in a pragmatic sort of sense. Okay, fair enough. But... Um, it still doesn't work to say it just is, because once we've admitted it just is, then that's being arbitrary and ad hoc. Right. All right, Jay, good one. Uh, you're right down there. I was just about to give you a 30-second warning. Um, so let's see, where are we at? That was your third one. Matt, this will be your third one coming up. Am I right? Am I on track here, folks? All Hi. right. I don't think this one will take the whole 10 minutes. All right. Well, feel free. The mic is yours, and then we'll switch gears into uh, something else. Sure. Uh, so Jay's ba basically just saying that if I can arbitrarily say the laws of logic just are, then he can just arbitrarily say that God is. He's completely right, except that's not what's happening. I'm not arbitrarily saying the laws of logic just are. I'm not even asserting that they just are. I am recognizing that I have no reason to think that they could be anything other than what they appear to be, which is uh, inviolate and absolute. I'm not saying they are absolute. I'm saying it's my presupposition, and that presupposition is supported by the continued reliability of these things. And yes, there's something in there that's always going to be circular, which is why we call them a presupposition. But, what, but when Jay, what he's really doing is admitting that he's presupposing a foundation to the thing that I'm presupposing. And, okay, 
you can you can call it arbitrary you can call whatever i'm saying the whole point of this discussion is we both agree on the absolutes and my view is i do i'm not aware of any way that they can be have a foundation i'm not sure that there's any way to demonstrate that they have a foundation and presupposing a foundation you can say it's an emotional appeal i don't what other reason would somebody have to presuppose a foundation to something that can't be demonstrated or hasn't been demonstrated to have a foundation other than their discomfort with the lack of a foundation. Because I'm not convinced that even, even the foundation that they're presupposing can do what they think it'll do. And I'll get to that in just a second. Um, he said all of reality presupposes a God. That's just a bold assertion. I'm part of reality as far as I can tell. I don't presuppose a God, so that's clearly false. But in the context of what he was actually saying, he, he seems to be claiming that all of this necessitates a God. And when he refers to, you know, the use of a reductio ad absurdum, I agree. I got no problem with a reductio. But no, finding a dead end in your constructed reductio doesn't mean that your other proposition is correct. There are two things that need to happen in order for that reductio to be of any use. The first is that you have to demonstrate that there is a, necess a necessity of an explanation for X. And then all other possible explanations for X uh, fail. And the, neither of those has been, has been done by any stretch of the imagination. I, I'm, you know, where's the demonstration that there must be an explanation, that it couldn't just be so? I'm not saying it is just so, which I was kind of accused of, but I'm just going to say that was talking quickly and that there was no malice in, in misrepresenting it. I'm not saying it has to be so. I'm saying where's the demonstration that it, it, that it is necessary that it can't be so? And we haven't gone through all other possibilities uh, to show that they lead to a dead end. We haven't even gone through the, the, the raw theism versus non-theism view to show that this doesn't have an explanation. Because just because we don't have an explanation for something today that is consistent with a worldview that doesn't include a God doesn't mean that that's not going to happen at a later time. This is, this is the thing about skepticism. There may be some things for which we will never have an explanation that's incredibly, we're all uncomfortable with not knowing. I wasn't trying to make an emotional appeal. I think that's how humans operate. Our discomfort with not knowing is what makes us seek answers. It's the reason we're having this potential discussion today, because if Jay can successfully present something that convinces me, well, now there's another person ostensibly on his side. And if I can, if I can show that we're Jay's made a mistake in assuming something that isn't necessary and can't be demonstrated, well, then maybe I have an ally on my side. I don't think either one of us came in today thinking that we were going to change the other person's mind. I don't do this. I mean, I'd be happy if Jay and I wound up agreeing on stuff, but I do it for the people who are listening so that they can hear a discussion about this. And especially in areas like, you know, deep philosophical concepts where I'm not remotely an expert. I just think what I think and, and, and for my reasons. Um, but I can do my best to explain it. I'm not, as you know, you talked about language. Uh, I'm not, a, I would never assume that Jay and I have the exact same understanding of word usage. As a matter of fact, I would assume the exact opposite, that there are things where we're going to have a different understanding of a word, a different understanding of a concept. But my presumption coming in here is that we both speak English and have an understanding of usage that it is sufficient for us to be able to discuss things, to find the areas where we agree. Like, if, if, hey, what do you mean by this word? What do you mean by God? Um, okay, well, now we can have this secondary discussion. I think, you know, I'm, that's the only assumption I'm making is that there's a likelihood that we can come to an agreement on terms and communicate ideas. And I, I think that it's evident that we're actually succeeding at that. But 
the, the notion that a god could serve as a foundation for the laws of logic, in, in addition to what, no demonstration of necessity, and I'm not sure what the warrant is apart from an assertion that there is a need and atheism or a, a non-theistic view of the world doesn't fill that, is this. Can God change, alter, or violate the laws of logic? Because if so, then they're not guaranteed. And if not, then he's not the guarantor. He is now subject to those same laws. And the second problem is that we all recognize, I would hope, that each of us is a flawed thinker, that we not only uh, have varying IQs and varying understandings and various biases that come in and the, the process by which we learn, every single one of us makes mistakes, and we can't even guarantee that we're that the model of reality that is in our head actually maps to an actual reality. That's, that's a kind of a, an assumption we're making as well when we're talking about solipsism. And so if we are flawed in our thinking, how can a God, even a perfect God, make your flawed mind correct and warranted without making your mind unflawed? It is like pouring clean water through a dirty filter. And so the fact that you are convinced that there's a God out there that serves as a foundation for logic doesn't mean there is one. And even if that God does exist and does serve as the foundation for logic, there's no way for that God to demonstrate that to you in w to the point where you would have uh, the essentially absolute or maximal epistemic warrant unless that God makes your mind completely not flawed, at which case there would be no more debate or discussion. It would just be, hey, this is the way it works. And we'd go, gosh, because we would have godlike mentality. And so I don't know how even, you know, I don't know how to overcome those problems. The laws of logic are our descriptions of abstract truths, which, okay, I'll set aside the presupposing of truth or the discussions about truth. Um, and I don't know that it's not the case that something can't simply be true, um, that this is the way it is. And in fact, it could not have been any other way. If, if we look at the laws of logic and they could not have been any other way, which is what it appears to be, even though we can't be absolutely confident about that, then it would seem to me patently absurd to suggest that there's something that must exist that serves as a guarantee that it couldn't be any other way if, in fact, it couldn't have been any other way. All right. Excellent. Um, great discussion, you guys. Uh, that uh, concludes the first hour of uh, our talk here. So, Jay, over to you for uh, you know what you want to do next. Do we want to do like a conversational now? I'm up for whatever. I'm up for whatever. I mean, if there's questions from from the chat or super chat, we can do those. If you have questions for me, I mean, I I asked a few questions yeah. there at the yeah, at the end, which I'm sure you. We'll get to the Super Chats here towards the, the last uh, section. So um, the first thing I would say is that you talked about um, what, what I was saying was that when it comes to the domain of philosophy where we do debates, where we do uh, argumentation, to say – I mean it's fine to say that you believe that we seek justification for our beliefs perhaps at times out of uh, psychological motivations for comfort – but that doesn't translate into uh, an argument in a debate. So just because, uh, and, it, and it could be entirely the case. It could be the case that maybe maybe a person is only arguing for the existence of God uh, because uh, of, of psychological motivations, and, and they're weak people, and they want they want to have comfort. But I still think that that's a, a fallacious argument in terms of strict logic. It's, it's not valid to the truth or falsity of God's existence. 
So when we're talking about logical necessity, we're talking about something that's a little more forceful and it's a little more strict. And again, it doesn't matter if we limit the certitude or the, 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 the trueness to maximal certainty. It really doesn't matter because I think the argument that I'm trying to present is that if we had the system of truth that you have, if we had your worldview, it would and should lead us down a certain path, a consistent path of solipsism, of total skepticism, if we were to follow through with those conclusions. But that the point is that, that you're not really doing that. You're still utilizing things that, that wouldn't make sense given your presuppositions. And that is itself the argument. So as a skeptic and somebody who essentially teaches about skepticism, I often get asked this thing about, can you be too skeptical? And of course, my answer is no, because what they're generally be talking about there is is not skepticism, it's cynicism. Skepticism is an ideology in an ideological sense is I want my internal model of reality to match the reality I experience as best as possible. Um, and so you, you've a couple times now suggested that my worldview should lead me down a path of total skepticism. Well, I am a total skeptic in the sense that I have doubts about everything. I am not absolutely certain about anything, but that doesn't mean that I don't have reasonable confidence in things that are based on the foundation of logic. Now, if we're going to have the conversation about what's beyond logic, which is apparently what we're trying to do, criticizing the view is just one more attempt to say, oh, there must be a foundation. Well, where's the demonstration that there must be a foundation? What is the, what are the consequences if there's not a foundation? But the argument is that you don't have a basis or ability consistently to appeal to logic itself, setting aside the justification of whether... I have the same basis everybody else does. I'm convinced that it is reliable, as are you. The difference between us is that you are convinced right. that you found why it's reliable. That's not. But but so but it, that was why I asked the the, principle, from, the question about induction, right? So induction and and saying that you're convinced about it, uh, it would presumably mean that you think that it works, right? It's pragmatic. Yeah. It works. Yeah, it works. We both agree right. with that. So does pretty much everybody right, else on the planet for the just entire. Something works is a value judgment, right? That you're using another category to try to say that that's why this thing is true, but ultimately that would be circular. Yes. Yes. So, that, so, so the, the whole thing is I've acknowledged a presupposition. Why? How on earth is it as a counter to me to say, oh, you're presupposing? Because on the, the worldview that you have, those kinds of things shouldn't exist. That's 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 absolutely not true. So this is where we're always going to get in trouble. You make an assertion about my worldview and about what shouldn't exist. My worldview is that I accept this because of a demonstration of its continued reliability. That's called induction. I have, and that's not a justification. That's just saying that it is right. So in logical justification, that was why I pointed to Hume all the way up to Quine. They still say that this is not a, a belief or a, a view that can be justified. Yes, and I agree. Yes, and I agree. I, I see no justification. You're asserting there is a justification. And when I ask for what it is, you're just asserting that, well, my worldview collapses without it. And you even asserted that these sorts of things shouldn't exist. Stop. You should assert these sort of things shouldn't have existed in my worldview. Where's the demonstration that my worldview should not include things that are just true or, better yet, that are reasonably presupposed because of their continued uh, demonstration of efficacy. Because they would be, that would be being ad hoc and being arbitrary. And I'm saying the justification is that in a world where there is a God, the doctrine of providence actually makes sense why there's induction and the regularity that's in nature.
I'm not aware of a girl world where there is a God. I'm aware of a world where there are people who are convinced there's a God and who are convinced it serves as a foundation. Right. Right. And so where's the demonstration for that other than an assertion? No, it's not. I mean, if we're just if we're just going to make flat out assertions, then you assert your rights. It's not, an argument. it's not an argument. You haven't presented a single argument for the for the for the entire thing. You've presented colloquial, no. kind of arguments. loose arguments, but there's not. The, the, whole the, the whole thing is you just you, you claimed that this shouldn't exist in my worldview, that logical absolutes could not be true under my worldview. The fact that I you're presupposing that there is an explanation for why they're absolute rather than just recognizing that they are. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. That would be being arbitrary and being ad hoc, and typically in debates, that's not allowed. It's. It's wow. wow. Hey, Jay, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, we are getting some complaints as you guys are doing a more free form conversation. So if you can, if you guys can kind of like, I hate to interrupt the flow, but we are getting some echo on your mic, Jay. Okay, so if when you can I'm not really talking, ride that mute. Okay, cool. Thanks. It's, it's so it would only be arbitrary. If I were asserting these things are in fact absolute and inviolable, that is not my no. position at all. My position. I mean, that's not that's not all that that's not all that's required to be arbitrary. Being arbitrary or ad hoc is just saying something simply is, and I can appeal to this thing, and I don't have to justify it. I don't have to give any reasons for or cogent okay. coherent basis for it. I don't know how many times I can explain the same thing. I'm not saying and have never said these are the way things, the, the logical absolutes are the way things are and I don't have to justify it. I've not said that. I've not implied that or anything else. I'm saying I am convinced that they are and I am not convinced that they have or need a justification. So stop misframing what my position is so that it is a straw man to knock down. I have never said the logical, ab well, I probably have said 15 years ago or whatever, but not throughout the course of this debate, that the logical absolutes are in fact true and don't need justification. I'm saying I don't see a need or any demonstration that they do need a justification. There, There's a huge difference. It's the difference between I am not convinced this person is guilty and I am in fact convinced this person is innocent. Those are different things. So why is that not being ad hoc or arbitrary? It's not. It's not. It's not arbitrary. You got an echo. Okay. It's not ad hoc because I'm not offering an explanation for how they are. 
I'm not I'm not even I'm not even acknowledging that there could be an explanation for how they are. There's been no demonstration that they require an explanation. So it's not ad hoc in that sense of I'm because ad hoc would be providing a justification for something. I'm not providing a justification for it. I'm saying I, I don't even know that there could be or that there is a justification for it. Do you see how that's not ad hoc? Well, I mean, you can say that that's not ad hoc, but I don't see how it's not, because typically when we talk about in the domain of epistemology justifying beliefs and justifying claims, it requires some kind of explanation. Now, you can do that. I, know, I understand you're doing that, you're saying that, but I don't think that that's a coherent answer, and I think that you're led to that conclusion because of the beliefs in the rest of the system, because it would require the admission of other things that are not compatible with the other beliefs that you have, namely the atheistic agnostic type views. Let me try, Let me try this another way. How could it possibly be an ad hoc explanation to say, I am not aware that there is or needs to be an explanation? Because that's being arbitrary. It doesn't need one. Right? Well, so so let me frame it this way so there's disciplines that are called meta disciplines right meta ethics meta mathematics meta logic these are real disciplines that people study now one could say that they're not real disciplines and dismiss it or whatever but when we talk about giving a justification or giving an explanation for things or, or explaining how they could be in the rest of one's worldview i don't think that that's a, an invalid question and you've said that you don't believe that it needs a justification I, again, it, you can say that that's not arbitrary, but it, to me it sounds arbitrary. On the worldview where God exists, there's regularity in nature because of providence, because God has set the world up to be regular. And that's how we can do the, the, the scientific method. That's how we can do logic. That's how we can do math. The world operates in a regular way. But when we don't have that and we just say that we only have our immediate sense experience, we only have what's pragmatic, then we're led to these foolish conclusions. Okay, I'm a fool. No, I'm not saying you're a fool in terms of a pejorative. I'm saying... No, yes, yes, you are. And this is the problem. I'm not offering any... You're echoing. I'm not offering an explanation, so it can't be an ad hoc explanation. What I, and I'm not saying this does not require justification. I'm saying where's the demonstration that it does? I'm not aware that... And, and I, you, you at least presuppose one thing that you think does not require a foundation. Right. Correct. Correct. So you presuppose one thing that you don't think requires a foundation, and yet you want to criticize my presupposition, which does not say this does not require a foundation, but instead says, I am not yet convinced that it needs a foundation. I haven't asserted that it doesn't. There could be there could be some foundation as far as I know. You could be right about the foundation as far as I know. It's just there's no demonstration that there is a foundation or that you have found the right one. What you've found is one that is consistent and appears to serve as that, but only because, if anything, and I was going to avoid doing this, you seem to be making an ad hoc explanation for the foundation of logic in there's a personal God agent who serves as the guarantor for something which we haven't even demonstrated needs a guarantor or could be guaranteed. Uh, and sorry. Lost it for a second there. Uh, so there's an ad hoc explanation there, which is one step removed from the thing that we both agree on. Yeah, well, in response to that, I would say that when you say that down the road, maybe we'll have an answer to these things, that seems to me to be kind of a leap of faith. 
the idea that that down the road we can answer yeah. these things right um but again that's well, probably the most frustrating thing is because i did not say that you did say you this said is, down the road the, i wrote it down when you were talking down the answer down the road perhaps we'll have an answer no, to this justification i so the point here is that i don't know that we won't have see you seem that's no the point in my response yes it is yes it is say okay here we go your your case is that a worldview without a God cannot offer an explanation for the logical absolutes. We'll just stick with that one and not all the other ones. My position is, and I was talking specifically about your argument about using a reductio, essentially saying that, you know, under God, there's an explanation or it'd be a uh, screw it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip that because uh, I was looking for the particular sil disjunctive syllogism, essentially showing that, you know, with God, we have an explanation. Without God, we don't have an explanation. Therefore, God. Um, what I said was, in a reductio, you have to demonstrate that there is a necessity for an explanation, in this case, and simply getting to a dead end, which was your language, which I went down, does not mean you've demonstrated the truth of the other one, because a dead end now does not mean that there won't be an explanation down the line. I did not say, we will find it. I didn't even say, well, if I, if I said we might find it, that I'm talking in a philosophical sense. I'm not saying that it's true. We're likely to find it. I also acknowledged we may never find it. And I'm fine with that one because I don't have any demonstration that there is an explanation. Well, I would reply by saying that that you claim to be a proponent of the skeptical tradition, that you're within that tradition of skepticism. And I'm very read in that tradition, and I respect a lot of areas of, of the skeptical tradition. But whether we go back to Descartes and his meditations when he begins to question things, or whether it's Hume, or whether it's the more modern skeptics, they're very interested in questioning justification, questioning epistemic claims, questioning meta-level questions. They're asking all those meta-level questions. They're very interested in how we do or can't justify laws of logic, numbers, all those different things. So it's not within. It's not unfair to bring those issues up because they're the heart of the issue, especially in the history of epistemology. I mean, you can read an epistemology textbook that's common, bonjour, something like this, and you'll find that the, the whole of the textbook is debates about coherentism and foundationalism and justifying claims. Now, one could say, I don't really care, or I don't, it doesn't matter to me or whatever, but in a debate, what's presupposed is some question or some rule, right, by which we go by these rules to confirm or deny the case, right? And I think what you've missed or tended to miss is that the transcendental argument is not just an argument that's a reductio against some other position. It's a positive argument that's about all of those transcendental categories. And if those transcendental categories are actually necessary and if they're actually very strong arguments themselves, then the argument for God itself is also strong and it's also a positive argument. It's not just a negative argument about well, I can find a flaw in your worldview, therefore mine's true. That's not the totality of the argument. The totality of the argument is that this worldview is coherent because I can look at all those different paradigmatic claims and preconditions, and they make sense, they're coherent. Uh, when I look at the system over here, and you can say I don't have a system, you can say, I'm not saying you said that, but a person could say as a skeptic, I don't have a holistic system, I just have the best that I can go by with maximal certainty and pragmatic approaches. But that still has claims that are necessary and implicit about metaphysics, about epistemology, and about ethics. Even if you don't want to go down any of those specific routes, it still 
uh, has a, a, a necessary implication. If I were to say I'm a total skeptic and I don't think that I know anything is true, that's still a claim about metaphysics, about ethics, and about epistemology, even if I don't want it to go there. So, so we're echoing, but the issue here is whether or not there's a God and you're presenting an argument for, for the existence of God based on the necessity of an explanation for logic, among other things, or as a foundation for it. My response is, you haven't demonstrated that this is a necessity. You've just asserted that the absence of su such an explanation leads to problems, but those problems presuppose that there is an explanation. There's been no demonstration that the laws of logic could have been any other way or that there's any case that they, ha that, that they need some sort of guarantor. And when I try to point this out, you've, on, on a couple of occasions, completely misframed what I was talking about. The card example, which I agree is, and I know you didn't raise this objection, but somebody, I'm not watching that, but I'm sure somebody out there was complaining about, you know, this analogy, that's within, you know, the reality, and you can, you know, provide evidence, and it doesn't fit within the transcendental thing. Yes, it's an analogy. I get it. The thing is, it would be a coherent if you don't know whether or not how you ended up with 13 spades, it would be a coherent um, explanation to believe that I cheated. Because if you're not sure whether I believe, and you're not sure whether or not I cheated or whether somebody there cheated, then you're in this state of, I don't know. And this is why I was talking about our discomfort with not knowing. I wasn't using it as, a, as a, an emotional fallacy. It's just a fact. We are uncomfortable with not knowing. It's the reason we seek answers. It's the reason why we presuppose in some cases that something may have an answer when we might be wrong about whether or not it has an answer. And so the card cheating example there, of course, if you sit across from me at the table and you get that, Almost anybody is going to be tempted to say, wow, I bet somebody cheated because everything makes a lot more sense if, in fact, somebody cheated. And that might make you more comfortable rather than not knowing that maybe I'm not saying that is the reason for doing it. You can convince yourself in a worldview where Matt cheated. Now, all of a sudden, this outcome makes a lot more sense. And you're right. I acknowledge that at the outset of the debate, at the very beginning. But that has nothing to do with whether or not I actually cheated. That has everything to do with your comfort or discomfort with not knowing. And if you're convinced that I did cheat, then of course that's going to be a satisfying answer. And it would probably be satisfying for almost anybody there as long as they didn't care whether or not it was actually true. And I care whether or not things are actually true to the best that we can find out. And so I can't make a leap to, oh, there must be a God that serves as a foundation for logic because I'm not yet convinced that logic needs a foundation. I, I see. And I think I see the, the point of departure now. So basically where I would disagree, where I think we're talking past is about the issue of different types of proofs and different types of things. So for example, your, your analogy is fine when it comes to matters of normative daily life, normative discourse, but when it's issues, I would argue that are so fundamental and paradigmatic that they destroy the possibility of knowledge or predication or logic ethics at all. They're different from the kinds of claims or beliefs that we have that, that speak to what you're talking about with your example. So for example, if I deny the laws of logic, there's, a, there's something very fundamental about argumentation, living, speaking, communicating that's completely destroyed, right? If I, if I 
deny them, if I doubt them, if I don't think they have a, 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 a true existence, if they're not real, if they're just social constructs, that's a much more damaging thing to doubt than if I doubt that uh, little Wayne has moved in next door to me, right? I might see a dude with dreads and I think it's little Wayne over there. Therefore, little Wayne has. Moved. Now, if I'm wrong about that, it doesn't destroy my whole worldview to be wrong about that. If I deny basic laws of logic, it does destroy my whole worldview. And so not everything is proven the exact same way. And so because those kinds of things are much more fundamental, much more powerful and paradigmatic, that's why it's such a strong argument. And that's why they do require a justification. I mean, the argument that you gave about the cards, you are giving a kind of justification. You're saying that we can't always go by the appearances of things. And I would agree with that. But it's different when we're talking about paradigmatic level presuppositions. And that's why transcendentals are different than normative argumentation and logic. Yeah, first of all, I don't know how that's special pleading, but going on about the consequences. Oh, you need to mute. Uh, going on about the consequences of denying the laws of logic seems completely irrelevant because I'm not doing that. See, you're, you're trying to argue for a foundation behind the laws of logic. That's the part that I'm denying but not the laws of logic themselves. And so I would agree, if you deny the laws of logic, then we can't have any kind of conversation, we can't do anything. We are forced essentially to recognize these things and denial of them would lead to chaos, except that I'm not doing that at all. I am denying your bald assertion that there must be a foundation. Yeah, but uh, as a skeptic, shouldn't we have a justification for things that we believe in? Yes. And that's why I've been so strong on pointing out the difference between saying I am convinced of X, I am not convinced of X, and I am convinced of not X. As a skeptic, I want to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. And I proportion my confidence level in what I believe to the available evidence for it, of which for the evidence of a foundation for the logical absolutes, zero evidence. The evidence that God serves as a foundation, zero evidence, as far as I can tell for any of these things. My position is not the laws of logic are in fact absolute and inviolable, other than they appear to be, and we should operate as if they are until there's such time as there's a demonstration when they're not. That that the these things continually demonstrate, we can't have conversations without them. They are as close to, if they're not absolute, they're as close as I think any of us could possibly imagine. And so my position is not, they don't require a foundation, because that would be an assertion that I would have to defend. I'd have a burden of proof. How did you come to the conclusion they don't need a foundation? I didn't come to that conclusion. I am not yet convinced that they do because I have not, nobody's demonstrated that, and you and I would agree, at, at least within your worldview, there's at least one thing that does not require a foundation. And so given that, you know, I, I'm not sure whether or not there's one thing that doesn't require a foundation or two things that doesn't require a foundation or zero things that doesn't require a foundation. Those are things that we can't don't seem to be able to demonstrate. Well, at that point, I would say that when it comes to the question of demonstration and, and how that's been used in epistemology and, and philosophy, I appreciate that admission, because if we're believing in things because they work and they don't have to be justified, 
That's not skepticism. Skepticism is interested in asking those questions. And I understand what you're saying, and I appreciate the attempt to be consistent, but I don't think that it's ultimately consistent because you can't just say, well, I, you know, I just I don't see why they have to be justified because that is being arbitrary. It's being ad hoc. And you can say it's not being arbitrary because you don't see a reasoning why it has to be. But that's the whole skeptical truth. That's why skeptics do what they do is to try to justify claims, to try to justify beliefs, to try to justify systems. And so, and so yes. and you could say, I don't, I, we're not, not going to do that. We try. We try. And if we don't find a justification, we keep trying. We're still echoing, but we, yes. So first of all, I'm, I'm sure, please, people who watch this later, don't beat Jay up too much for lecturing me about skepticism while arguing on behalf of, for a, a God. Um, skepticism is about wanting your internal model from an idealistic standpoint. Modern scientific scan to match reality. Modern scientific skepticism is about testing as best we can. But that's that's within the context of testing fact claims about reality. So that modern scientific skepticism isn't going to address whether or not logic has a foundation. You're talking about almost an ancient Greek knowledge of skepticism that, have, that has been discarded because no, it leads to... Okay. They're the very okay. questions that well, Hume and Quine asked. Yeah. Yeah. That's not ancient Greece. They asked questions. They did not assert answers. That's the difference. You're asserting no, if you an read answer. William Van Orman Quine's essay, Two Dogmas of Empiricism, he says that they cannot be logically justified on empiricist grounds. That's why they're called two okay. dogmas of empiricism, according to Quine's famous essay. Sure. Hesher? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We want to read some Super Chats. We're getting towards the last 15, 20 minutes. All right, yeah. All right, yeah. We are into the final segment here. Great discussion, you guys. Um, it was. Yeah, let's do that, Jay. Let's. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really enjoying it over here. And, uh, yeah, Jay, if you have any Super Chats, I guess now would be a good time to round those out. Franklin Chan. As one, last, as one last clarification, uh, you can say whatever you want about Quine. I'm not beholden to Quine. I'm talking about my thing. And this notion of skepticism, I've already explained it over and over and over again, and you have yet to demonstrate any sort of problem with it, except to assert that I'm not a skeptic in the same way whoever the hell you reference is a skeptic, and I don't care. Fair enough. Uh, definitely one can take a different track, but uh, I'm just interested in the, the history of different skeptics and how they talk and what they consider justification and how philosophy and epistemology typically speaks of justifying claims. But, and, so, I'm I'm, and I'm not. I'm interested in what's actually true and demonstrable, which is why we're stuck. Okay. Uh, so we'll go to Franklin Chan. He says, thanks for the debate. Thank you, Franklin. Jolene Kay says, uh, for the cause. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Jolene. Michael Flaherty, $100. Thank you, Michael. Finally, a real debate. This is all. Tanner Terry, $2, says, atheism saved. Doorman, <laughs> Doorman 360 says, Jay bringing up Hume's argument uh, about induction being unjustifiable in a materialist worldview. Why would the same, why would today be the same tomorrow for no reason? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially the, uh, the, the argument. Tanner Terry, five dollars to both debaters. What are the? Go ahead. Are, are, are we, are, are we going to address some of these? Sure. Some of these. Some of these. I mean, you know, when when I say I don't, I don't care what Hume said or Quine said or anybody else, because you know I'm going to take pieces from different things, and I'm certainly not as well versed on some of those as, as they are. I'm talking about what my position is and why. When we talk about uh, induction, 
um, we live our entire lives by inference and induction. We begin with this assumption that tomorrow is pretty much going to be like today because the entire history of the world has continued to show that that's going to be the case. But we also do it with the recognition that tomorrow is not identical to today and that there are trends. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't expect that the Earth's going to stop spinning on its axis in the next 10 minutes. But I do it with the understanding that it's very likely that, and, and almost certain that it will stop spinning on its axis at some point in the future. And so when we talk about induction, there's a reason it's it's not deduction. It's an approximation. It is an estimation. It's an inference about what things are going to be like. But that is not the same as wild-ass guessing, I guess, is, is probably the, the best way to put that. And it's the reason why we rely on, on science, despite the fact that science is, is virtually a, almost entirely an inductive process. Yeah, and I would agree with everything that Matt just said. It's just that in the history of this debate that, that I'm bringing up, the question of justifying... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.